So um, I don't know if you guys have heard uh, a lot of this stuff, but I feel like there's a lot of um, conspiracy theories kind of floating around right now about, you know, some of the things going on. Like there are things going on in the stock market, like in the financial world. There's an oil crisis you may or may not have heard about because of what's going on with Russia and Saudi Arabia now. I saw even this morning that there's all this talk about, um, you know, who started the coronavirus or whose fault is it. Um, I think the U.S. is blaming China. China's blaming the U.S. <laughs> They're saying that, you know, it's like, you know, so... Russia versus Saudi Arabia, you know, U.S. versus China, Jerry Reinsdorf versus Jordan versus Phil Jackson. You know, there's all these things going on. There are these conspiracy theories all over the place. And um, it kind of made me think, um, like, do you ever wonder why conspiracy theories are so compelling to people just in general? And you may not even believe in them. A lot of the ones that people kind of prescribe to but like Area 51, you know, or like UFOs or something, or the Illuminati, or, you know, the assassinations of certain people, or the moon landing being faked, or flat earthers, or anti-vaxxers, you know, or where's Elvis, or where's Tupac, you know, there are all these kinds of things that people think, the list goes on and on. Even, uh, you know, true, uh, true crime documentaries, like remember Serial, <laughs> or Making a Murder, or now, you know, Tiger King, like even though it's kind of ridiculous, and even if you don't believe it, right, you might not, like I don't believe in aliens, but like I still liked watching the X-Files, like it's, it's still interesting. And do you ever wonder why that is appealing? Why to pull on those threads and to find connections? Why is that appealing? And I think it's because somehow it, it gives us a sense that things are not just random. You know, that, that they're connected. That there is someone at the top pulling the strings or that there is some kind of secret organization or there is some group of powerful people that is making things happen a certain way. And somehow, even if we are... Uh, even if we are... Uh, the losers of that situation, somehow it gives us some kind of comfort, right? To know that there's, okay, there's somebody to blame. It's this person's fault or it's that person's fault. It's this country's fault. You know, it's, it's this particular politician's fault. It's rich, it's rich people's fault, you know? There, it gives us some sense of a reason, an explanation a sense of why it's all happening, because I believe that at our core, we desire to know that purpose. We want purpose. We don't want to just believe that things are random. And particularly right now, that's completely understandable. We could, you can see how, I can completely see how that's something that we would want. Now, we're in a series called Purpose in Suffering. And that, in fact, is what we've been trying to look at right now. We are in a season of prolonged suffering. And I know it's to varying degrees. We're all in uh, various places on that spectrum of suffering. But all of us are feeling it in one way or another. And we've been trying to look at uh, how we can see purpose in that. 
not from some person, not from some secret organization, not from some group or powerful person or whatnot. And I'm not saying I believe or disbelieve any of those theories. But we're trying to look at what is God doing? What is God doing in these seasons? What does God do in these seasons? And what is he doing in this season that we're in? And last week we saw one of, uh, one of the purposes in suffering is that God leads us to repentance. You know, because suffering exposes the danger and the horror of sin. It kind of reveals that in the world, in ourselves. It points us to the suffering of the Son for the salvation of uh, for our salvation from sin. And, uh, you know, if you, have a, if you haven't had a chance, I encourage you to, to look at that. It's kind of a companion message to what we're going to talk about today, which is uh, the idea of holiness. You know, so we're going to continue our exploration of this question. What is the purpose of suffering? And more specifically, how should we view suffering, not only so that we can endure it, but so that we can find purpose as we go through it. Um, that's what we're going to look at today. So if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, we're actually going to start in verse 4. Sorry, there's a misprint there. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. And um, 4 through 13. So we're going to read that. And uh, if you don't have it, it's right there on your screen. This is God's Word. And it says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Let's read on, verse 8. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So if you kind of look before this text, what precedes this text is in Hebrews 11, you have what's called the, or what's often referred to as the Hall of Faith, kind of goes through this uh, pedigree of faithful uh, people in Scripture. And uh, it talks about how they had faith in God and they trusted not only in the things that were promised to them on this earth, but they were looking at Jesus himself. And then Hebrews 12 opens up with this idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus, you know, uh, looking at Jesus and considering the sacrifice that he made on the cross. And then moving into the section that we're in in verse 4, it says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
Now, not yet resisted means suffering is coming. It says they haven't resisted yet. They have not yet resisted to this point of shedding their blood, but it's, it's going to come. It probably will happen. And so he's, the author of Hebrews is preparing them for this idea that suffering is coming. The, to the point of shedding your blood, suffering is coming. And to endure it, he reminds them of these couple things. First, um, there's a purpose in this suffering, right? It's not for no reason. God is treating them as sons. If they're, and, and he's, the author is encouraging them, okay, well, there's this sense that if you don't get disciplined, right, a father who does not discipline his children is not a good father, right? It's not a true father, biological realities aside, if any father who would just leave his children without discipline is no true father. A true father wants what's best for his child. And regardless of how pleasant, unpleasant, excuse me, that discipline may be for the child or for the father, the father will do it, right? If a child is without discipline from the father, then that's an illegitimate child. In fact, that's what the Bible says. And so, unfortunately, um, you know, that's a reality that some people in the world face. Some of, you know, some people in our church face. Unfortunately, some of our earthly fathers did not care enough for us to stay in our lives. That's a, that's a tragic reality, right? And I will say one thing, um, kind of as an aside, if that's, if that's where you find yourself or if that's kind of the life that you've had, um, you know, God cares deeply and particularly for you if that's the situation that, that, that kind of, that's your life. Because God says repeatedly uh, in Scripture that he has a particular heart for the widow and the orphan, right? For those of us who have been abandoned by our earthly fathers, uh, God is our true father and he will never abandon us. That's something that he wants us to know. Uh, but for most, most fathers, although in broken ways, Fathers care for their children, right? I mean, it's not perfect, but generally speaking, the author's point is that um, most fathers care for their children, and most children at a certain point in their lives, probably for us at this point in our lives, you kind of respect your father for whatever discipline he gave you, right? And the point is that earthly fathers do that in this imperfect way for our good for a time, but our Heavenly Father, if you look at verse 10, our Heavenly Father disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For they, they being the uh, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a time which seemed best to them. Earthly fathers discipline us in a way that seems best to them. It's not perfect. But our Heavenly Father, and that is kind of His second way of comforting them for this coming suffering, the purpose is so that we may share His holiness to produce holiness in us. So that's kind of our main point today. All suffering, what is God's purpose in suffering? All suffering is meant to ultimately to increase the fruit of holiness and righteousness in our lives. That's the purpose of suffering. Or that is one of God's purposes in suffering. 
Now, what is holiness? Real quick, now, to be holy simply means to be set apart, right? When, in reference to God, when it talks about being holy, it means he is different. He is other, right? So holiness is not simply moral superiority. Unfortunately, many of us don't kind of never get past this idea of what holiness is, um, Kind of the, you know, and you might have thought this, like if you grew up in church, you might have thought this in like elementary school. It seems like what holiness is, and it means you don't curse, you don't drink, you know, you're quiet, you're reserved, even like you don't have fun, you know, you kind of just, just listen, you know, unconditionally. This is the idea of what holiness is. But last week we talked about sin, right? Uh, what is sin? And at the heart of sin from Romans 1, the heart of sin is not having God at the center of our worship, the heart of sin is preferring creation to creator God. It is saying, God, you are not the most worthy thing. You are not the most valuable thing. You are not the thing. You are not the person that I most treasure. It's something else. It's, you know, it's work. It's this other person. It's money. It's this creation. It's this idol. Whatever other thing this is, this is who, this is what I worship. And that's the heart of sin. So if that's sin... You know, repenting from that and turning to holiness is really just the opposite. It is ultimately preferring, valuing, treasuring, honoring, loving God. To pursue holiness, to find holiness, to grow in holiness, to produce the fruit of holiness, is to believe that God is the pinnacle of worth and value. It's to seek and to find all of our hope and joy and life in Him. It's not to prescribe to a list of attributes and then say, okay, well, I got to work on this and I got to work on this and I got to do this and I got to do this and I got to do this. That's part of it. But God doesn't look at a list and say, okay, well, am I doing this? You know, am am I being patient? Am I being loving? And then kind of checking off whether He's doing it or not. That's not the way God works. That's not the way holiness works. If such a list exists, God himself defines it, and knowing and loving him is at the center of it. So, all suffering is meant to produce this fruit in us, to increase this fruit in us. How does that work, right? So, how can we do that? How can we step into that holiness? So, we're going to look at a few application points, okay? And this, it's... I'm not nearing the end. This is going to be, <laughs> we're going to go a little bit longer here. But application number one, um, consider hardship as discipline, not punishment. Consider hardship as discipline, not punishment. Now, uh, the author of Hebrews, he does write, for the moment, all discipline seems painful, Right? Like all discipline seems painful at the time. Whatever hardships we face, whatever suffering we face, they will be genuinely painful for us to endure. But, he says, remember that the, the suffering that you're facing is not just, it's not punishment. Right? It is discipline. And there's a difference. Right? Like so, if somebody goes, if, if I went to a store today and I robbed this store, you know, I, I take a gun, I hold them up. It's armed robbery. I get caught. You know, the police come. They arrest me. What happens? Well, I go to jail, right? That's punishment. I did it. I'm found guilty. I am rightfully sentenced to prison. I actually committed the crime. I'm found guilty. And my punishment 
what happens in that situation is that I go to jail. That's something that I deserve in retribution for what I've done. That's kind of societal justice, right? Now, is that for my good necessarily? I mean, not, not particularly. Like, I, the justice system doesn't really care if it's for my good or not. The justice system, the law, the rule of law is just kind of upholding the law. If you break it, you have to face the punishment for it. That's kind of the way that the law works. Now, when I, on the other hand, when I give my son a timeout, um, that's discipline. You know, punishment is kind of a part of it, like if he does something wrong. But the reason that I do it is not just for him to be punished. It's not just to uphold order in my household, right? It is for his good because I want him to know the difference between right and wrong. Because I want him to know the difference between what is good and what is bad. So then our suffering, and this is something that we have to understand, like our suffering is not to pay the price of sin because Christ has already done that, right? Our suffering is to destroy the power of sin in our lives. Christ has already paid the price for sin. When Jesus came and he was 100% man, 100% God, went to the cross, died for our sins, he has completely paid the price of sin. That price does not need to be paid again. If we are in Christ, if we believe Jesus, if we lived our lives and we're trying to do it our own way and we've been doing it for a while and we're stuck in this and we're just like, this doesn't work anymore. You know, if you're a Christian, you've been through this experience. I just don't want to do this anymore. I'm, me being in charge is not working. And so I'm just going to give it all to you, God. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to follow you. I need you to save me, to rescue me. That is what it means to be in Christ, you know, to be saved by grace through faith. And if that's the case for us, then Christ has completely paid the penalty, the price of sin. Yet, God still allows us to go through suffering because here's the thing. If you believe that you are as smart as you'll ever be, you're as wise as you'll ever be, you've got everything figured out, you're doing everything the right way, then, you know, you should not expect any kind of suffering because you don't need any kind of correction. But if you expect that that's not the case, then we should expect some kind of discipline from our Father correction, being led onto the right path. Now, once we face that suffering, the question is, how will we take it? If we take it as punishment, like, oh, God just, God's mad at me. God hates me. You know, then, in fact, we miss out on the discipline, right? If you look Verse 11, it says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Who have been trained by it. So it yields that peaceful fruit when we are trained by it, but if we are not trained by it, then it will not yield that peaceful fruit. So that's application number one. Consider hardship as discipline. Right? Number two, 
Let suffering lead you to discover God's will. Let suffering lead you to discover God's will. Now, I'll share a story with you guys. So, I think this was Monday. Yeah, it was Monday. So, having a, it's a normal quarantine day. <laughs> you know, post-Sunday, post Monday for me is usually, like, just a lot of, I'm at home. I try not to do any work. I just, like, spend time with the kids. You know, Boomi's working from home, so she's doing her thing. And, you know, I just, I don't think families were meant to spend this much time together. Let me just be honest, okay? I don't think that, you know, husbands and wives and children, you know, parents and children were meant to just be at home all day, every day. It's just not the way it's meant to be. And, look, even statistically, this is being borne out because, like, apparently people are fighting more. You know, spouses are fighting more at home. And look, we're, we're human spouses, and so we're at home. So on Monday, Boomi and I, we're having this discussion. You know, we're having some kind of discussion about parenting. It gets heated, and we get into this fight, right? And we get into this big fight. Like, we haven't had a big fight like this in a while. So, you know, I'm, she says, you know, I'm saying things. She gets upset. She says something. I get upset. And, like, the thing is, we're also so tired. Like, I was so tired that day and just angry that I'm like, okay, I don't even want to deal with this. So usually we don't do this, but we didn't resolve it that day. You know, I was so tired, I just went to sleep. And so we go to sleep the whole next day. We're just, we're having this, uh, you know, it's like a cold war. It's just like a silent warfare, right? And all the kids, you know, we're playing with the kids and we're doing stuff, but we're not, like, talking to each other. And so finally, Tuesday night, we, um, you know, we have this discussion. And we have, and we, we, we have this. And I... I, at first, didn't want to, I was very angry. I didn't want to say anything because I knew I would kind of burst out in anger. Tuesday night, kids are asleep, and we start, we start fighting, you know. We're, we're arguing about things. You know, our voices kind of get loud. And, um, of course, the, the thing is, when we have the fight, right, at that moment, our hearts are revealed. Like, the, the reasons we felt hurt and angry and we actually end up sharing things that maybe we've been keeping back, maybe we haven't been sharing. And at the end of it, of course, we feel, in fact, much closer. Like, we actually understand each other. You know, we had been... Because this is what happens, right? When you're in any relationship, this can be a, a spousal relationship, this can be friendship, this can be with your parents or your kids. You know, you get into this pattern of communication, and you have a way of just... Uh, you build up these mechanisms, these ways in which you say things. And you just get used to it, right? And you know there's certain things you probably shouldn't talk about. There's certain things that they're sensitive about. There are certain patterns that lead you into fights, and you don't want to go that way. And so you end up just building up these almost automatic responses, right? It's like algorithms. It's almost like you build these things up in your head and you know the ways that the conversations are going to go. And so you just go the path of least resistance because that's what you're used to. But what gets lost in that is sometimes your real heart, what you really want to say. It's weird how, it's like, Boomy and I, every year um, on our anniversary, like, we always... You know, we go out and we'll, we'll spend time together. And we always talk about, like, okay, what, what do you remember? Like, what are your memories from our relationship? 
just from our marriage or from our relationship. And it's funny, but a lot of the times, like, there's a few things that we'll bring up, like, from our honeymoon or something like that, like these good moments. But a lot of the moments we, we bring up, the things we remember, they're the hard things. They're when we were struggling, when we were suffering, or even fights, like big fights that we've had. Because afterwards, our hearts are revealed and we got so much closer together. Now, the reason I bring this up is because we do this with God. Like, we create these patterns of communication. Do you ever pray to God and you just, you're just saying the same thing that you always say? You don't even realize it. It's just automatic. It's just automatically coming out of your mouth. You didn't even think about it. We develop these things, these habits with God. And sometimes we need like a shock to that pattern, a shock to that system, suffering, hardship. Something that makes us examine what is actually in our hearts. Something that makes us think twice about just what we're saying, what's coming out of our mouth, the pattern of our lives, what we're doing. We need those layers to be pulled back. We need those mechanisms to be removed. See, the process of sanctification, this is to become like Jesus, to grow in holiness. It's a progressive work that God does in us. To go from wretched thoughts, to go from the horror of sin to the holiness of Christ. That is not a casual process. It's not one that you can build into your life like a minute at a time. Right? Like, hey, God, you know, I'll just... I'll just read a little bit more. I'll pray an extra minute every day. You know, that's, that's really not the process of sanctification. I'm not saying spiritual discipline is not important and, you know, incremental changes like that are not important and significant. They are. But the, the real process of sanctification, like going from the habit of the horror of sin to putting on the holiness of Christ— it takes you to fight with God. It does. Like, the thing is, when I fight with Bumi, um, you, sh you know, uh, pretty much always, right? Like, I'm wrong and she's wrong. We're both wrong. Right? There are, there's compromise. You know, there's, we have, we're not seeing each other, and so we have to see each other and understand each other, and then we grow in relationship. The thing is, when, when you know, you and God... And, and what you realize when you fight with somebody is that you disagree about something. That's what causes the fight, right? And then you reconcile because you, you understand each other. Here's the thing. You and God disagree about stuff. And if you have these mechanisms that you've built in that make your relationship with God easy, then you probably don't realize you disagree about stuff. Like that you and God disagree about your theology of relationships, of work, of money, of sex, of politics, of power, of justice, of comfort, of mission, you know, of all these kinds of what is community supposed to be, what is church supposed to be, like all of these things. You and God 
Me and God, we don't 100% agree on those things. The process of sanctification happens when those things collide. Our view and God's view collide. And oftentimes, we will never question those views until we're faced with suffering. Whether it's a global pandemic or a fight with your spouse or loneliness or financial hardship or a failed business, you know, like when these things happen, that's when our theology is actually put to the test. And it starts with this, like the fight starts like this. God, what are you doing? Right, like what are you doing right now? What are you doing in the world? What are you doing in my life? And if that's the way you ask the question, that's your tone, right? That's usually how it starts. That's okay because the tone will soon change to, God, what, what are you doing? What are you doing in, in the world? What are you doing in my life? What are you doing in these circumstances? Why have you brought me here? Why have you kept me here? What are you teaching me? What would you like me to do to glean, to seed? That's the process of God teaching us who he is, his character. And suffering is the catalyst that leads us to this disagreement with God, which ultimately leads us to understand him. So that's what I would say is application number two. Let suffering lead you to discover God's will not to go deeper into your own will. And here's, here's number three, okay? Uh, let suffering lead you to deeper resolve in following Christ. Let suffering lead you to deeper resolve, to strength in following Christ. If you look there at the end of the passage, uh, verse 12 it says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Now, make straight paths. Uh, it's a powerful expression when understood in its biblical context. The author is almost certainly drawing from Isaiah 35, a chapter depicting Israel's return to Zion from exile. This is Isaiah 35. Here, 3 through 8. This is just a, a portion of Isaiah 35. And it says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees, saying to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame... The lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools they shall not go astray. That's an incredible passage. You know, I encourage you, just read some Isaiah 35 this week. Right, just, just open it up, just read it over and over again. 
right? If we are in Christ, okay, and, and this, is in, this is in reference to Israel's return from, from Zion, uh, to Zion from exile, but it is really a promise for all of us in Christ, suffering strengthens us in our weakness, right? Because really what it does is it brings us to our knees. And when we're brought to our knees, and I'm not just talking about coronavirus, right? Some of you guys might be like, oh, like coronavirus hasn't brought me to my knees, right? And that's fine for some of us. I know there are some out there um, who are facing, you know, very serious things, people who have lost loved ones, people who have, you know, I mean, people who have lost jobs, people who are struggling financially. Um, but I'm not just talking about coronavirus, right? Like, I'm talking about, because suffering is, is prevalent in our lives, really, uh, at all times. And, and what it does is it forces us to rely on Jesus. It forces us to rely on Christ. Uh, this is from 2 Corinthians 1. Uh, and it says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Uh, emphasis mine there. But do you see what he's saying there? Um, in verse 8, because he says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That we despaired of life. This is, Paul is talking about the suffering that he faced in Asia. And he's saying basically, and he doesn't, he doesn't say explicitly what the suffering was. We know that Paul experienced a lot of suffering in his life. But he says, we, I suffered so much there. Like, we suffered so much there that I was depressed. I was, like, utterly depressed. Despaired of life itself. And this happened to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. And when we are brought to our knees, whether that's now or later, uh, we find Jesus there. And Jesus always grants us to get to our feet. Uh, if we rely more on God in our suffering, uh, because other reliances are stripped away. Uh, we will live more like God. We will become more like God. And the purpose of holiness and the purpose of righteousness in our suffering comes through reliance on God. Now, I would, I would say this. Um, if all suffering is meant to, you know, lead us to holiness, uh, for an unbeliever, you know, if, and if you're, like, not sure where you stand before God, this has to follow through faith. Uh, anyone who's facing suffering, anyone who's facing suffering, whether you're Christian or not, it can be confirming suffering rather than condemning suffering. And, in fact, what I would say is that's what God wants it to be. Like, he wants it to be a suffering that confirms his love for us, not a suffering that, you know, confirms our condemnation. And so whenever we're facing suffering, if we would turn to Christ, 
whenever we're facing suffering, if you would turn to Christ, you would find that that suffering is not a condemning suffering, but it is a comforting, confirming suffering. I'll close with this, and this is the beginning of Hebrews, which precedes the passage we looked at today, Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, I used to read that, verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And I would think, Jesus went through this suffering, and so I should look at him, the example that Jesus sets, because he faced such suffering, and I should try to be like Jesus. But I think, I don't really think that that's, that, that's what it means. I don't think I'm supposed to look at Jesus and be like, Jesus went through it, so I should go through it. Right? Like, Jesus went through it, and therefore, I have to follow Jesus and, like, find this resolve in myself, find this power in myself to do it, to endure it, and to run this race, and to endure this suffering. No, I think, I think the idea is Jesus went through it for me. You know, it's not Jesus did it, like Jesus did it so I can do it. No, it's Jesus went through it for me. That's where the power comes from. Not to know that he did it so that I can do it, but to know that he did it for me. He did it for you, for your, so that your suffering is not condemning suffering, so that your suffering is not punishment, because it's not punishment, so that your suffering is not something that you're getting just because you deserve it. That's not what Jesus intends for, because he suffered for you differently than the way that we suffer. He suffered for sin, for our sin, so that our suffering is not punishment. It's not just us receiving what we deserve. It has purpose. He wants to make us like him as we look to him, what he did for us. And, you, and we feel and we know that he loves us. That's the suffering he went through for us. That's where the hope and the power and the joy and the motivation come from, knowing that there's nothing, we can't ever repay this. He's given us so much. And in that, we can have hope and life and joy. That's what God wants us to have in him. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much that you endured the cross for us. God, that you suffered and knowing, God, that, that your suffering was not meaningless, God, that it was not purposeless, that you did it, 
not just to set an example, God, for us to follow, but for us. God, so that we would not face ultimate suffering, so that our suffering would never be purposeless and meaningless and conquering. God, we know that in you, Jesus, there is life and there is joy and there is power. We know that in you, Jesus, our suffering is not condemning, but it is confirming. It is reminding us of how much you love us and you want to grow us and you want to conform us to your image, God. Help us in that, God. We know that this is a weird time. Um, we don't want to spend it just uh, surviving the virus, God. But we want to spend it becoming more like you. Uh, would you lead us to that? Would you empower us to that end? Uh, we entrust it to you. Thank you so much, God. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.